Welcome back to Bootability. Before we jump in today, a quick note that we're airing a rerun this week of one of our most popular episodes from June 2021 with lawyer Dan Foley called Love Wins, A Buddhist Lawyer and the Fight for Marriage Equality. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Welcome back to Bootability, a weekly interview series about the amazing ability people have to change our lives and the world if we're brave enough to tap into it. I'm your host, Jihi Jolly. Throughout this month, we've been highlighting stories and perspectives to celebrate Pride Month, and today's episode concludes that coverage with the incredible story of a Buddhist lawyer and the fight for marriage equality. First, some context. Six years ago today, on June 26, 2015, the United States Supreme Court ratified same-sex marriage, a monumental achievement after a more than 25-year battle across the country. Recently, journalist Sasha Eisenberg published a riveting, comprehensive history of that struggle, titled The Engagement. America's quarter-century struggle over same-sex marriage. He traces it back to 1990, when the political movement took off with a case that eventually made it to the Hawaii Supreme Court. At that point, Eisenberg explains, no significant gay rights group had endorsed marriage as an objective. But in 1990, when three same-sex couples applied for marriage licenses in Honolulu, they were denied, and they turned to a lawyer named Dan Foley. Less than three years later, the Hawaii Supreme Court became the first court in the world to conclude that queer couples' freedom to marry was a basic civil right. The rest is a fascinating and groundbreaking history of the national journey towards June 26, 2015. Reading Eisenberg's book, I was surprised to learn that Dan Foley practices SGI Nietzsche in Buddhism, and his practice is chronicled in some detail along his journey through Hawaii's courts. So today, we're speaking with him about how Buddhism can help you win no matter what your fight is. Before you meet him, here are two brief excerpts from the end of the book. On the morning of June 26, 2015, Dan Foley rose to a murky quietude. Summertime storms were a common tropical occurrence, and sometime overnight, the eastern part of Hawaii's Oahu Island had been struck by one. The little electric clock at Foley's bedside was blank, and he staggered to the bathroom where he stashed his smartphone overnight to check the time. Instead, he was greeted by a headline from CNN's website, Supreme Court Rules in Favor of Same-Sex Marriage Nationwide. After chronicling the majority opinion from the 5-4 decision, Eisenberg writes, The light suddenly flickered on, and Foley got up to make a cup of coffee. He then kneeled before the wood altar and scroll he kept in his home and began to chant Nam-myoho-renge-kyo. As he murmured the sutra, its familiar vibration brought Foley back to the morning in October 1992 when he had sat in his 24th floor law office and performed the same Buddhist chant two hours before making his most important argument before the Hawaii Supreme Court. Let's hear the rest from Judge Foley. So um, 
Why don't we, uh, I mean, because it is, and I'm, I'm calling from New York and it is quite scenic already. I can tell where you are. So why don't we just start with introductions? Uh, you can just start by telling me your name and where you are calling from today. Okay, um, I'm Dan Foley. I'm calling from Kailua, Oahu, Hawaii. I'm uh, two blocks from the beach. So uh, in the background, you can kind of hear the uh, waves uh, lapping at the shore. It's, yeah, beautiful, very different than where I am. And I can even hear birds, I think, <laughs> which feels yes, like, you a, can. You can. yeah, so beautiful. So um, thank you so much, first of all, for taking the time to speak today. This episode is actually going to come out on June 26th, which was actually a happy accident <laughs> that it's the anniversary. Yes. Isn't that something? <laughs> yeah. So it's just even more meaningful um, that we get to have this conversation today. Um, but why, why don't we just start with a little bit of context about you and then about your practice. If I can just first ask you to give us a short introduction. I mean, I know you've had quite a long and illustrious career, but what you do generally and, and kind of where you've been working. Okay, I, um, I'm originally from San Francisco. And um, after law school, I, I joined the Peace Corps and I served in Lesotho, Southern Africa as an agricultural extension worker. Uh, then went to law school and went out to Micronesia for eight years, that's west of Hawaii, where I helped them uh, become independent nations. I wrote their constitutions and statutes. Uh, after Micronesia, went to Hawaii, became the first legal director of the American Civil Liberties Union and started doing civil rights litigation and taught civil rights at the law school, University of Hawaii at Manoa. And that's when I, um, you know, began this same sector marriage case as a civil rights lawyer. Um, when I concluded my career as a civil rights lawyer, I became a Hawaii appellate judge in 2000 uh, to 2016, 16 years, and also became a Supreme Court Justice for the Republic of Palau uh, in huh. Micronesia, where I, I currently serve on a part-time basis and now do mediation and arbitration uh, part-time. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I I have so I wish we could talk about many different aspects of your career, but I think we're going to focus on on something very pivotal in more ways than one today. Um, that is the focus of this you know book that just came out. But before we get into that, I wanted to ask for a little bit of context on Buddhism. So when and how did Buddhism enter into your life, and did you start chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo? Okay, my my mother was Jewish. Uh, my father was Irish Catholic. They split when I was very young, but I was raised as a Catholic, went to a Jesuit university. And from San Francisco, I was introduced to Zen Buddhism, which is very big in San Francisco. So fooled around with that, fooled around with Tibetan Buddhism, read a lot of Buddhism, was very interested in it. And at the university, I studied theology and philosophy. So I was always interested in religion. But when I, my wife and I, my wife is from Hawaii, um, she was a Soka Gakkai member. And so when we decided to get married in 1984, I converted to her Buddhism because I figured um, it'd be good for a marriage if we both had the same practice. And I was very comfortable uh, and impressed with Buddhism in general. And that's how I came to uh, this particular practice. And uh, don't regret it for a minute. Amazing. And um, just one follow up to that is, do you remember, you know, when you first started chanting any sort of, 
like noticeable changes or internal process that you began to go through that kept you chanting? Well, you know, everybody has different karma, as you know. And so everybody sees the results of their practice differently. Um, mine was instantaneous. I mean, just remarkable. And I could tell you, uh, I hadn't secured a full-time job. I just come from Micronesia to Hawaii um, and a position open for the ACLU and I applied. And there were many uh, applicants and I'd only practiced in the US for less than a year. And all the other applicants were very experienced US lawyers. Hmm. So before the interview, I chanted for about two hours, just focusing on that interview uh, to to communicate, to impress. Um, and um, I remember one of the lawyers in the interview, one of the board members said, well, Dan, it looks like you know a lot about Micronesian law, but do you know anything about US law? <laughs> and I said, well, I, I think I can come up to speed. Well, they hired me. And years later, the executive director of the ACLU said, you know, Dan, we don't know what it was, but we interviewed you and you just felt like you were the right person for the job. <laughs> so that experience, and that was just a few months after I started practicing. Uh, I don't think if, uh, if I didn't have that practice, if I didn't have the focus uh, of the chanting, um, and what chanting does emanating outward from you. I don't know if I would have gotten that job. And had I not gotten that job, I may not have been a civil rights lawyer and may never have seen the same sex marriage case. Wow. Oh, my goodness. How? Um, yeah, what a what a journey. It always starts with something so simple. And then you never know what these kind of small decisions and experiences can add up to, which um, it leads to, you know, the, the sort of topic of this episode. So a book um, titled The Engagement just came out fairly recently about the history of same-sex marriage in America, and it features your journey as part of this sort of um, constellation of activities across the country that uh, led to the decision, you know, that we are, we all, you know, of course know about. But, um, it, you know, it began in Hawaii, and I don't think that many people know that or ever really heard that story before, and you um, were kind of a key piece of it. So can you tell us briefly, um, you know, for someone who maybe hasn't read the book or doesn't have the context, the story of basically um, what happened? Like, what was the case that you ended up being presented with in Hawaii? Why did you end up taking it on? And um, how long did it take to win? Okay, first of all, if anybody wants the full story, as you stated, um, pick up the engagement by Sasha Eisenberg, just reviewed yesterday in the New York Times. Um, he's the only one that I think has really told the true story and the story of Hawaii, where mm -hmm. it all began. And it all began on December 17, 1990, uh, where three couples uh, in Honolulu applied for marriage licenses and were denied. And they couldn't find a lawyer. Uh, they tried the ACLU. They said no. Human Rights Campaign, Land and Legal Education Defense Fund, Gay and Lesbian Task Force, you name it. Everybody said, that's a pipe dream. That's not possible. Uh, the last word and the only word the U.S. Supreme Court really had had it on gay rights at that time was the 1986 case, Bowers v. Hardwick, where they upheld a sodomy statute where it said you can actually criminalize uh, uh, homosexual conduct. Um, and so, you know, they found their way to me. 
um, and I was a civil rights lawyer, um, and I took cases that other people didn't take. Um, and so when they came to me, I hadn't really thought of gay marriage before. I'm straight. I was married to a woman, had two boys. Um, but my reaction was, well, you know, I'm married. I have the rights and benefits of marriage. Who am I, say, who am I to say no to them? Mm. And so it wasn't that I thought I could win. In fact, I told them it would be unlikely. Um, but I knew it had to go to state court, not federal court, because um, federal court would not be favorable. And I thought maybe I could come out with something, maybe not gay marriage, but our Hawaii Supreme Court had never had a gay rights case before. I'd argued before them in other cases. I felt, you know, positive. I can come out with something if, if not gay marriage. And I was teaching at law school at the time, and I used to bring my cases into the classrooms, civil rights litigation. So my students, as a project with me, started going through Hawaii Revised Statutes, almost 20 volumes. And this is hard copy back then oh with goodness. four indexes, you know, no search engines. One, page one, page two, you know, all the way through to identify uh, what rights and benefits come with a marriage license. And we identified over 400 state rights and benefits. So what I did was I quantified the discrimination. It was not only withholding the license from same-sex couples, it was treating them as second-class citizens because they were denied this array of rights from pensions to health care, uh, to hospital visitation, to wrongful death acts um, that straight people had because they could marry. Mm. So I filed in state court in, in May of 91. I didn't get too far. Uh, judge threw it out. I thought he would. But I was always preparing it for the Hawaii Supreme Court, where I argued it in October of 1992. And there's five justices. And I was the appellant. I went first. And I did 20 minutes, reserved 10 for rebuttal. And then the deputy attorney general got up. And then the uh, one of the judges, Jim Burns, who I later ended up serving as a judge with on the appellate court, uh, he confronted the deputy attorney general and said, you know, a man and a woman walk into a marriage license bureau and apply for a marriage license. You give it to them, don't you? And she said, yeah. He said, but a man and a man or a woman and a woman walk into that same bureau and apply for a marriage license. You don't give it to them, do you? And she said, no. And he said, that's discrimination. And all of a sudden, it was just like the hair stood up on my arm. And it was like, wow, they're taking my case serious. No court had ever taken a claim like this serious before. And then in May 5, 1993, a number of months later, they came out with their decision, the first decision in the world um, in favor of same-sex couples seeking the right to marriage. And that's when everything sort of reverberated across the country. The next day, the headlines of the New York Times, LA Times, nobody had been paying attention. And I remember one CNN reporter flew out from the LA Bureau and she's sitting in front of me a couple of days later. And she says, uh, could you explain to me what's really happening? I mean, are they really gonna give homosexuals marriage licenses? And I said, uh, yes. And I explained to her what was going on. And then she asked, she said, aren't you afraid of a backlash? Hmm. And I foolishly said, no, I was very naive because I couldn't understand why people would get upset. I said, 
you know, in Brown versus Board of Education, there was a backlash in the U.S. Supreme Court said you have to integrate schools and later other public uh, facilities because certain white people in the South didn't want to go to school, didn't want to be on buses, restaurants, parks, swimming pools, you know, with African-Americans. So there was a backlash. But I said, here, nothing changes. We already have gay couples living together. Many have children. We're just going to recognize it's legal mm. and, and they should be treated equally under the law. But there was a big backlash. The legislature started holding hearings, proposed a constitutional amendment. And we went to trial because um, the state had to show a compelling state interest why the license shouldn't issue a two-week trial with psychiatrists, uh, sociologists, uh, pediatricians, uh, psychiatrists, you name it. And, and the state couldn't show any good reason why the license shouldn't issue. So we won that. Uh, but then a constitutional amendment was put on the ballot, um, which was approved in, in 98. But by that time, uh, Vermont had started moving and Massachusetts had started moving. And they all sort of used our approach as a template, uh, our pleadings, our approach. Canada started moving. They contacted us and they were one of the first countries. And it was from so all of these cases began Vermont, Massachusetts and later uh, throughout the world. Now we have 30 countries in all 50 states because of this Hawaii case. Mm, incredible. Thank you. Thank you for, for sharing that that summary. And um, I, I want to kind of go back and we'll unpack little little pieces of your personal journey through this. But just um, just for the sake of context and understanding, like truly the impact that this had on the rest of the country, I understand um, you know, you said that they used this case essentially as a template and that a civil rights case like this had never really been fought or won before. Can you share a little bit more? Um, yeah, just a little bit more about that and, and how tremendous and unique it actually was. Well, we um, we argued that um, gay couples, gay people should be treated equally. Uh, under the Equal Protection Clause of the state constitution. That was later argued uh, under the federal constitution years later, um, once the U.S. Supreme Court reversed that Bowers v. Hardwick case in, in 2003, then the federal court doors opened and you could bring claims there. So uh, no court had ever ruled that uh, uh, same-sex couples should be treated equally uh, as, as heterosexual couples. It had never been done before. But what I argued was in, in civil rights law, the key thing is, how do you review a statute? If a statute discriminates based on race um, or in this state gender, the government has to show a compelling state interest to justify that discrimination. So I had to compare the uh, sexual orientation and gender uh, with race and, and, and gender as far as women uh, that it should have to meet the same standard. And it was a standard the state couldn't meet here or, or anywhere else. Um, and that's what was so ironic because, you know, the, the state would argue, well, homosexual marriage or gay marriage is not good for children. But when the evidence came to court, the actual testimony was the children of same-sex couples will actually benefit by allowing their parents to marry. And the children of opposite sex couples will no way be impacted. Mm. So one of the things that happened in our case, the first time in the history of the world, 
was it actually went to trial. And all this uh, argument and, and about gays and, you know, the sky will fall, and Sodom and Gomorrah and all of this stuff. Um, it just wasn't true. You know, when you ha actually had to go to a court, put on evidence, there was nothing. Mm. And that was unique. And there were a couple of trials later, one in San Francisco on Prop 8, challenging Prop 8, and, and one, I think, in uh, Michigan, and essentially some of the same experts. Um, so, you know, our case was the first of its kind to prevail on those arguments, equal protection, and we also argued privacy. Uh, in the Bowers v. Hardwick case, it was a 5-4 case, that was that sodomy case, the U.S. Mm -hmm. Supreme Court in 1986. There was a, a dissent uh, for the four written by Justice Harry Blackmun, where he thought sexual orientation should be protected under the right to privacy. And I argued that as well. I argued before our Hawaii Supreme Court, you should follow the dissent in Bowers v. Hardwick, not the majority opinion. And other state courts did the same. So it was groundbreaking in, in many ways. Um, but the key thing was, um, I brought in um, uh, Evan Wolfson, who was a lawyer with Lambda Legal Education Defense Fund, a very out gay man litigator with a national organization. And I understood if we prevailed in Hawaii, it would have impact across the country. And we needed a bridge. And it wasn't going to be me, a straight guy from Hawaii hmm. uh, with no organization behind me. And Evan was the perfect guy. so. He was the bridge to the mainland that went to Vermont, that went to Massachusetts and, and across the country, uh, setting up um, follow up litigation. And we kept in touch and, and worked together. I see. Yeah, I mean, that's just so, so incredible. And um, I imagine that the, the day to day journey was um, uh, a lot more difficult than it, you know, you're able to really present in retrospect. So I I'm so curious how you were doing, you know, personally, what your your kind of experience was through this. I mean, it sounds like initially you said, I will take it on because they deserve to have a lawyer without any tremendous expectations of actually being able to win. Um, let, let's maybe start with, um, were you chanting about this explicitly at the time? Is it, how did your sort of like daily personal practice come into play in the decisions you had to start making? Yeah. Well. I never stop chanting. I mean, it's every morning for roughly 30 minutes and every evening for at least 15 minutes. And I read during the day and I try to be a Buddhist all day. Mm. So I'm always practicing Buddhism. That's my life. And so any case I take, whether it's a large one like this or a very small one uh, in the eyes of just one person's life, I, I approach it in a similar fashion. Uh, the one thing I had been a civil rights lawyer and an ACLU lawyer, and I had been used to ham handling high-profile controversial cases. I, I filed a class action lawsuit against the state to reform the prison system and to reduce the prison population. And I received threats against my life. This was before same-sex marriage and lots of negative publicity uh, on that one. I had represented Hare Krishna t-shirt vendors on the sidewalks of Waikiki. And some people said they were so obnoxious that we'll give you gay marriage if you get those guys off the streets. So I challenged the pornography statute in Hawaii and got that overturned. 
So by the time same-sex marriage came, I was used to um, taking hits. Mm. But, you know, again, the Buddhist practice helps you uh, because you don't take it personal. Um, you just try to understand why people are doing it and respond respectfully um, and, and focus on the issue you're doing and make your arguments and, and go forward and never give up. Um, and so um, I think the most difficult time um, wasn't so much me, but the LGBTQ community. Um, the polls were against this two to one from the very beginning in mm -hmm. 1991 until the time the constitutional amendment was adopted in November of 98, by that margin, two to one, we could never move them. And I remember being in a ballroom and I knew the result was coming because we had done our polling too. Um, looking around hundreds of gay and lesbian couples with tears in their eyes crying as the TV station read out the results. And I had to get on stage and address them. I was their lawyer. And I remember getting on that stage and say, okay, we got knocked down. Let's get up. Let's keep going. We don't quit. We will win. But I remember that was the most difficult time, not so much for me, but feeling that pain. Uh, and throughout the process, when uh, bills were proposed in the legislature to propose a constitutional amendment to overturn the court decision, uh, many of the things said uh, about the LGBTQ community I didn't care so much about me. I was used to that. Um, was very painful what they would say about being an abomination, being immoral. And, and that was very hurtful, but not unexpected. Um, but you just, um, there's a book out on the, the road to Brown versus Board of Education and the civil rights law, uh, Eye on the Prize a documentary was done on that. And that's kind of what it is. You just keep your eye on the prize equal rights, equal treatment under the law, and it keeps you going. And mm -hmm. you chant that. You just, you will yourself forward. You just chant, never give up. Mm. Yeah, that's that's really, really encouraging. And I can, I can only imagine, honestly, what, what that felt like. And, um, you know, 30 years ago, even culturally, and this is detailed in the book as well, you know, it, it really was a different time. Um, in parts of the country, it still is that time, but in other parts of the country, it isn't anymore. And so, um, yeah, the weight of having to both navigate the work in the case and, and how people are communicating about it or at, you know, at one another, I can really only imagine. So um, thank you for sort of for, for painting that picture. I, I am wondering... Um, you know, you mentioned uh, you basically just have to never give up. And of course, um, I grew up in the Buddhist community, so I'm used to hearing that. I've heard that my whole life. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, ordinarily, um, we do give up. Most people do give up on things quite often um, because it's really hard to keep going. And so I'm just wondering from the perspective of anyone listening who um, especially might be new to Buddhism, but have some sort of a fight in their life that is a very, very long haul and potentially even an impossible one. Was there any um, sort of like teaching or Buddhist concept or, or something that you held onto that helped you to do that? Or did you have moments where you did want to give up? No, never, never. As you say, it's the teaching. And one of the thing in Sasha's book, he, he, he interviewed me a number of times is that 
one of the teachings is to confront and overcome what appears to be impossible and to challenge it and to overcome it. And in fact, the teachings, as you know, in Buddhism is it's these problems and obstacles that allow us to grow. Uh, if we didn't have them, uh, we wouldn't grow. And so you never, ever, and this is especially true in civil rights law. You know, I'm a student of civil rights. You look at someone like Thurgood Marshall and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, which was formed in the 1930s, uh, for decades, uh, what he did going to the South to litigate his life seriously threatened, not stupid threats against me, but serious threats against him. And what he and the African-American community had to go through and even going through to this day to try to achieve equal treatment under the law. Uh, but someone like Thurgood Marshall, he, he's one of my inspirations and my role model of someone never giving up. Now, he wasn't a Buddhist, but many of our principles are not just ours. You know, they, they apply to others in daily life. Um, and uh, and I, I would tell, you know, I'm, I'm older now, and I, I talk to a lot of younger lawyers uh, in, in sessions. And I tell them, if you don't give up, you always win. It doesn't necessarily mean that the case always turns out your way. That would be foolish to think that, oh, every case I do, I'm going to get the judgment or the verdict. But if you never give up, you can't lose. Hmm. You know, giving up is losing. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting because this has come up, you know, previously on the podcast, but many people that I've interviewed um, the kind of terminology that they use is that you have to decide that you're going to win and Buddhism is about winning. And, you know, I, we've read this from, from Ikeda as well. Victory, uh, Buddhism primarily concerns itself with victory or defeat, which is not what people normally think of when they think of Buddhism. You know what I mean? So, um, yeah, I just feel like your, your whole story is just such a perfect example of that. And it's also your profession is based on that. Yeah, and sometimes um, what you think is the winning may not actually be the winning that mm -hmm. you chant and you practice and you go go forward and you find out the win actually appears in a different form than you actually thought it would be and when you read sasha's book the engagement uh, you can see all the twists and turns and ups and downs and and uh, never giving up uh, ultimately winning in 25 years from the time the uh, the couples applied for a marriage license in Hawaii, December of 1990, to June 26, 2015, when the U.S. Supreme Court came down with its final decision. 25 years. Now, in civil rights years, that's remarkable. Look mm -hmm. at the African-American civil rights struggle. Look at the women's civil, civil rights struggle. And look what LGBTQ achieved in just 25 years. It's unprecedented. I do wonder, you know, um, again, for, for anybody who's listening who may be trying to sort of uh, apply lessons from, from this story to, to their current kind of struggle or their, or their current fight. In Buddhism, we have this concept called human revolution, or, you know, on the podcast, we refer to it often as inner transformation that people inevitably go through over the course of their life and over the course of their Buddhist practice, because Buddhism is about kind of constantly changing yourself on the inside. I wonder that aspect, whatever you're comfortable sharing, you know, th this was a 
quite a long, I mean, I'm sure this is applies to other cases you've had to fight as well, but um, what sort of inner transformation do you, have you seen yourself go through as you've been kind of fighting these very complex cases? Um, you know, I, I've seen myself grow as a Buddhist um, year mm -hmm. by year. And I, I think this case made me grow a little faster. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you grow when you confront and overcome obstacles and, and address problems and resolve them. And there was a host in this case. Uh, one of the most rewarding things about this case, before I took this case, I was somewhat involved with the LGBTQ community. I assisted them in litigation with HIV AIDS. I did a case called the Miss Gay Molokai case uh, which is mentioned in Sasha's book. Um, but I didn't feel like I was a member of the LGBTQ community. Hmm. Now I do. And to, to, to become a member of that community, to, to, to learn, uh, to become part of their struggle, to, 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 to really feel like it was my struggle as well, and, and to work with people like Evan Wolfson, um, um, and others at the national level, and, and to see the success, Mary Bonato uh, from Maine, um, that was so rewarding. Um, and that goes to a Buddhist concept about happiness. You know, mm -hmm. part of the Buddhist practice is to become happy. And some people that aren't Buddhist, they, they say, well, isn't that selfish? I mm -hmm. mean, aren't you supposed to sacrifice and, and be miserable <laughs> to help other people? Well, in Buddhism, no. You become happy by making other people happy. Mm. You know, we're Mahayana Buddhists, right? Mm -hmm. And and that's part of it. We practice Buddhism in the community. We, we don't go into a cave and detach ourselves from material goods and reflect on our navel or whatnot. We, we, we jump in, and much of it is compassion and, and working with others. And so this was a, a real life experience where you could practice your Buddhism through civil rights law, uh, focusing on marriage equality and actually see the benefits. Um, one of the uh, examples uh, Sasha talks about in this book, I, I told you when I chanted and, and got that ACLU job. Well, before I argued before the Hawaii Supreme Court, um, I shut the door to my office and chanted for almost two hours straight. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd done all my work, I was fully prepared, just focusing and, and commanding myself to present myself well to communicate. There's a power in that. Mm -hmm. When you walk into that courtroom, after that two hour chant, you, you're project, you're, you're, you're projecting something that you wouldn't otherwise be able to. Um, so I, I've seen it, you know, because I wasn't born into Buddhism like you were. You know, I was a practicing Catholic, an agnostic, studied theology, philosophy, uh, Hinduism, Islam, you name it. And so I know what it's like with Buddhism and without Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And that's the proof. It's in your daily life. Um, and I don't care what argument someone makes to you, a non-Buddhist. Um, ultimately, the only way you'll know if you try hmm. there's absolutely no other way you can't be convinced logically because um, buddhism goes beyond logic mm -hmm. uh, and, and and me is a good example but for my wife would i have started practicing i don't know but i know the difference it's made 
And this case is so satisfying because I know my Buddhist practice had a lot to do with it. Mm. Yeah, it was it was really striking how evident that was um, in the book as well, because, you know, this is a, a book about about many legal cases and these moments of of you chanting were so striking um and yet they sort of made sense like the way sasha had written it that this was um this was part of the process and he didn't really explain how it was part of the process but it was very clear that it was so i of course was very excited to to see that you know one of the other things that came out we don't teach discrimination and it was interesting when I was working with the LGBTQ community in Hawaii and they found out I was a Buddhist, they found it so interesting because all the other churches were against them. They would say, oh, you mean your church isn't against us? And I said, <laughs> no, we're, we're not against you. Uh, and that was one of the things that, that really came out is, is, and, and made me proud to be a Buddhist, mm. that we teach that the, every life is sacred whether human or non-human, that every person has Buddha nature. And, and, and one of our goals is, Sa Sasha, I think, quotes me on this somewhere in the book, is that one of our thing is, is to help everyone choose their maximum potential mm -hmm. through the practice of Buddhism, to find your unique mission and to actualize it through the practice of Buddhism. Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly what Buddhability is or the the name of the podcast and, and the website and everything, it's to make very clear that this is an ability that all people have <laughs> that they can tap into. Yes. And that's so true that someone reading Sasha's book and looking at what I did with my case, don't think of it as remarkable. Mm -hmm. Don't think, whoa, Judge Foley did this. I'm so impressed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, anybody can, you know, and, and Every case is important. I had one case that's not publicized, a young Samoan man in prison, life without parole, for a murder he did not commit, um, based on false testimony. I took that case. There was no publicity. I spent five, six years on it. I got him out of prison after he'd been in prison. And I remember the next day, us going to a local Hawaiian restaurant, eating beef stew, rice, poi, iced tea, looking at him across the table and just absolutely being moved to tears that I was able to do that. Mm -hmm. And I felt to myself, if I did nothing else, you know, I'm so satisfied that I was able to do this. So it didn't have to be 50 states and 30 countries in terms of marriage equality. It can help improving the life of one individual through your Buddhist practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so encouraging. And um, it, it, I, I do have a follow up because hearing you say that it made me think that, especially because you've been taking on um, some of these these cases that are, I mean, essentially just um, situations in which people's, uh, how do you say, lives are deeply disrespected. And, you know, a legal system that has sort of supported that disrespect in many instances, right? So I just imagine, um, you know, in the in the same sort of breath, you have this tremendous compassion for the people that you really are, are supporting. And yet you're probably working in a system that is very difficult to respect and faced with people that are very difficult to respect. And, you know, you mentioned earlier that chanting, you know, 
helped you sort of respectfully disagree in many cases. So I would love to hear a little bit more about that. Like, how do you summon compassion for a system that is angering or you know what I mean? You know, that's really a, a wonderful question because um, it's been asked to me before, because what's more litigious and angry than law, courtrooms, disputes, criminal cases, civil rights cases, divorces, you name it. Um, and when I was nominated as a judge, um, many of my opponents from these cases came and testified in my favor to be a judge, huh. people that I'd actually gone against, because I always treated them as if they had Buddha nature with absolute respect and compassion. And it, it can be done. Uh, you can be a very uh, aggressive litigator. Uh, you go to win your cases to represent your client. It doesn't mean you disrespect the parties or the lawyers on the other side, or that you behave in a dishonest or deceitful way. That you can carry yourself uh, with dignity and, and with the highest principles. And Buddhism allows you to do that. Um, one of the things Buddhism does, it, it makes it very clear you and your environment are one. And you can change your environment by changing yourself. Everything you do, think, and say impacts your environment, for better or for worse, to be aware of that. And mm -hmm. so the way you think, speak, and act is to be positive, not negative. Um, and you can actually be litigating a case and, and walking out of the courtroom and going out and having lunch with your opponent afterwards. There's, there's nothing wrong with it. So I think the, the practice of Buddhism uh, allowed me to get in this very litigious environment um, without losing my cool or my calm or my happiness. Hmm. And um, so uh, for anyone uh, interested in going into law or practicing law, <laughs> you know, a uh, good way to stay away from alcohol, drugs, and, and other sorts of problems is try Buddhism instead. <laughs> I love that. Um... I have two final questions, if you're okay on time. Um, so this, this, just going off what you were just sharing, um, I think it might be helpful for people to hear an example of a moment in which it was really difficult to be respectful or to not feel angry or defeated or you name it. Um, and I'm wondering uh, if, if there was, I mean, I know there's so many, but if there was sort of one example or one moment um, in the same-sex marriage case that you, you sort of felt like, I'm going to summon the ability to handle this in this way based on the fact that I have been chanting. Does that make sense? I think the, you know, the, the sort of twofold. One is I appeared in many community forums uh, with my opponents on TV, trying to get union support and whatnot, community groups. And I would have to listen to what they said about the gay and lesbian, bisexual, transgender community um, and not be angry, um, despite the hurtful things they were saying. Not so much to me, um, as I mentioned, personal attacks just don't bother me, um, but against people of the community. But I understood it was through their ignorance, uh, through their actual belief in a false theology, that they just didn't know better. 
um, and that we just had to overcome it by winning. And by winning, um, it isn't helpful getting angry at them or retaliating against them. It's keeping your eye on the prize and moving forward. And then I don't know if it was anger, but it was more sorrow. Uh, uh, because I share the sorrow of the LGBTQ community when the constitutional amendment was adopted. 30 states adopted constitutional amendments against marriage equality before the tide changed and the vote started going the other way and public opinion started going the other way. But I think um, Sasha's book, The Engagement, is a good history lesson um, on how you go about affecting change and that you're going to be knocked down repeatedly you're going to be attacked repeatedly terrible things are going to be said against you repeatedly but you keep your eye on the prize you don't let that distract you um and you win mm. amazing i think that's one thing chanting does for me it puts things in perspective every morning when I wake up and I chat and I read some Buddhism daily guidance, um, it puts things in perspective. Oh yeah, I have to do this today. Well, in the entire universe of things, I think I can handle that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know? I absolutely. That's also why I love that it is a daily practice. It's, you know, um, I remember someone once telling me that, um, we're not striving to be philosophers of Buddhism. We're striving to be practitioners of Buddhism. And those are two very different Absolutely. things. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for sharing all of this. I, um, I would love to ask just one final question to close, which is what I often end the show with, um, which is a piece of advice. So we, as I mentioned, you know, define Buddhability as this ability, you know, it's interchangeable with Buddhahood, but an ability that people inherently have, a potential that every human being inherently has, you know, to transform their own life, to transform their community and their society. But it is very difficult to believe in yourself, I think. So what advice would you give to someone who's listening and wants to tap into their Buddhability, whatever their con uh, context might be, but might be struggling to believe that they can actually make a difference? Okay, one thing I would do, and I'm not here to promote the book, but read <laughs> The Engagement by Sasha Eisenberg, because it can show you what one person can do to begin a movement that otherwise would not have begun when it did. Mm -hmm. And, and that was a Buddhist. That was someone practicing our Buddhism. And there's no reason why that couldn't be you. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing I would say is I came to Buddhism through someone I loved and respected my future wife. And if there's someone you love and respect that practices Buddhism, trust them, believe in them, try it. And you have nothing to lose and everything to gain. Today's takeaway for me was just how important it is to never give up, to treat others with respect, and to practice Buddhism daily from our smallest moments to our most important ones. For more content from Pride Month, visit bootability.org. And as always, if you'd like to get in touch or get connected, email us at connect at sgi-usa.org to find your local Buddhist community. That's all for today, and we'll see you next week.